Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyan. Welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast sponsored by Applied Software. We are recording live, virtually at least, uh, during MEP Force this week. I get the honor of seeing MEP Force. It's the only virtual conference entirely focused on the MEP trades. And at the end of each of our three days, we will be recording this live podcast to wrap up all the information and the festivities that happened during that day. I am joined by our special MEP Force panel, Nathan Wood, Executive Director of Construction Progress Coalition and host of Share Payne's podcast, Rob McKenney of ESUB and co-host of the Content Crew podcast, Travis Voss, leader of Innovation Technology at Mechanical and host of the Construction Dorks podcast, and finally, James Simpson, Product Manager for Evolve Mechanical. James, we got to get you a podcast. Apparently. <laughs> right. Jump on the train, man. <laughs> hey, hey, youngest thought leader in the industry. Big welcome to y'all. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us. Uh, so while it's all virtual, uh, I feel like we've gotten a lot of energy and momentum uh, at this uh, kickoff, which is really exciting. A couple stats before we dive into what has gone on today. We've had... 1,300 attendees from four continents and six countries, which is wow. super exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So uh, we are officially a, a big international conference now. So that's <laughs> Congratulations. <fun>. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. So we, uh, we started all the activities off with the, the keynote from Amy Marks, the, the queen of prefab herself on the, the rise of the subcontractor. And just want to get your, your hot takes on, on what she said. Wait, wait, before we go to Amy though, I want to talk about these visual effects on the intro, Mr. MC here. That was pretty cool when we all came in and it was like, as if we were actually in a, in the conference from last year's. MVP right. Right. You're presenting yeah. that. That was some pretty cool technical creativity there. I got to give you credit before we dive into Amy's, which was also was awesome. Also. Yeah. Hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> this virtual world, you never know. Right. Those tricks later. I definitely want to learn how to do that. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a sidebar. But uh, I know, I know, Rob, you took a bunch of notes on on Amy's speech. You want to start off? Yeah, man. It was a fascinating talk. I think um, the concept, this industrialized construction. I was still trying to wrap my mind around a lot of things that she was talking about because we've heard little bits and pieces, but to have someone kind of draw it all together and walk you through what that term really means from her and specifically talking about getting the right tool for the right project really resonated with me about understanding when you're diving down into the, the workflow of the MEP area of right tool, that's a fascinating talk to hear at a, you know, kind of at a macro level what we're talking about, but then bringing it down and really talking about also the shift, some of the numbers that she was quoting from Dodge about how much, how much in the MEP space we've seen, but where they think it could go and her challenge to try and get to that 45% mark, I, I found it very intriguing. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked how she started with the, the word salad. Of, you know, you hear all these terms all the time of DFMA, industrialized construction, modular construction, uh, but what do they all mean and are people using them the right way? I thought that was really cool to, to see that all listed out in one spot and then kind of systematically go through what they really mean and where they fit. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And I, I'll, I'll piggyback on Rob a little bit too. I, I like how she pointed out that, you know, we're, I think we're further along than we thought we were in this whole industrialized construction, like many of us that have been doing fabrication for a while. Um, 
and then and then the right tool for the right job. Not every project is going to be built completely offsite, and that has to be okay. We we have to have, but we also we also have to have those conversations early enough to make those decisions um, in the project at the right time, so we don't we don't end up being behind on the ones that we really want to execute it on. But I think you know, in Amy's defense, a little bit the the importance of those words of that of that word salad of really understanding the umbrellas of industrialized construction that DFMA design for manufacturing assembly is not the same thing as prefabrication, right. and that prefabrication has its own continuum uh, that spans a lot of things that again mechanicals and MEP have been doing for a long time. We just didn't have words associated with it. So I think what, what I love about Amy's perspective is she really does bring sort of the owner and the construction management perspective and, and the lean perspective to how do we really sell the, the business model and sell the financials behind doing this. And that at the end of the day, it, it isn't a one size fits all. You do have to figure out what is the right tool for the right project. So just, I, I love her message. Every time I hear it, it's, it's more and more refined and, uh, and a just a really great message coming out of Autodesk. And I can see that they're kind of working towards actually practicing what they preach and helping this stuff talk, talk to one another uh, really the way that it should. Yeah, if I could just add somewhat of a sidebar, but kind of on the same topic. So, you know, it's kind of the overall point of, you know, you, you have to have a common language to talk with, right? And, and set baselines and standards and so on. And, you know, if not, it's a barrier in communication, right? But what about also the barrier, you know, and once again, speaking, coming into industry so early, a barrier to even sometimes, you know, ha have younger generations come in or, or even have adoption in general, right? To get that same just language, right? And, and, and reduce that learning curve because a lot of these processes, you know, there's, there's a lot of steps involved and, you know, just to try and minimize any hurdles, right? To, to getting started and getting down that path too. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's an overreaching message, but there's a lot you can really kind of dig into there. Yeah, I think one of the uh, the cool takeaways from Amy's talk is is right there in her title, the, the rise of the subcontractor. Would love to get your thoughts on why are the, the MEP trades really positioned to be the true leaders in the construction industry moving forward? Uh, well, I'll I guess I'll jump on that. As, yeah, I think, uh, I think Travis, you probably <laughs> you're probably best suited to answer this one. <laughs> It should be a um, softball know, that I, I just it's a soft, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess from our perspective, it's what we've, we've talked about, especially when you get into like the ones that she pointed out, like uh, like a medical facility or whatever, like, you know, upwards of 60% of that work is our work. Um, and we've been doing a lot of these, a lot of this type of stuff already. So it, we're just naturally positioned already. We, um, I can't, it was a, a later a later, oh, the, uh, the trade talk later on when they're talking about it, like a lot of times we do, we do the modeling, we do the prefabrication, we do all that anyway, because it makes us better. So, so who better really to lead that charge than to, to, to take the lead and, and bring those other trades and, and bring, the, bring them along with us and, and, you know, I hate to say it sometimes, but drag the project team with us into this world. Yeah. Well, and from, from a GC's perspective, how often is it that the mechanical contractor uses the GC as the excuse for why they can't do something? And I think a little bit of what Amy and a lot of the arguments, you know, towards the reality and these uncomfortable conversations that we have to have are, there are some situations where it doesn't make sense to have a GC or, or, or maybe a mechanical can act and has acted before as, as a GC role. But uh, I think just the whole reorganizing the whole you know roles of who who does what where when and why i mean for dfma and this whole mindset shift to happen we really have to rethink 
uh, and, and decouple the different uh, segments of the mechanical electrical plumbing supply chain and really rethink who should do what and where the best place for the handoff. Because th there's obviously a lot of waste in the system right now and, and technology can fix it. But so much of these conversations today are around the culture, the contract, you know, all these other barrier, non-technical barriers to uh, really connecting all this data together. And I want to jump in real quick where you, you pointed out and I, it sparked something that Amy said too is, is you know, we teach our, we're trying to teach our people to use more technology and they're afraid that their jobs are going to go away. And I think that there's still the same fear even among GCs or CMs that, that their role is going to go away. I think that we have to educate the owners, edu educate the GCs and other partners that we're not, we're not trying to steal their piece of pie. Um, we just want to have them make their piece of pie differently because I think it will work better for the whole, the whole project team. We're not trying to take anybody's jobs away. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think too, it's really, um, you know, really uniquely positioned to kind of be the perfect time for that, right? Because there's so much more importance, I think now, but also especially moving forward just on MEP trades, because, you know, previously up till now, for, for the large part of buildings, it was more of, you know, it, can, can people move through it efficiently? Is, is Can it accommodate whatever we're trying to do efficiently? But especially with COVID-19, I think it has to be much more functional, right? Well, what about these standards? Can we get this specialty equipment in? Can we, I think there's so much more importance that's really, and that's really just scratching the surface, but so much more importance that's going to be placed on just MEP contractors in general that it's really uniquely positioned, right? To start having those conversations. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's kind of just the perfect snowstorm. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit ASTI.com and let them know we sent you. So how do you Guys. go about really having those conversations and, uh, you know, making the threat level of we're coming for your jobs and taking that off the table? So I, I, I thought the trade organization conversation with, with Ken Schneider and, and the rest of the, the trade unions really hit on that. So the, the change in risk and the fact that a lot of times these risks are being put on trade contractors for, certain engineering designs or other things that really isn't in their liability, let alone like their, their wheelhouse of, you know, maybe what they should or shouldn't do. But ultimately I think that's an opportunity to start a conversation around, you know, changing the risk structure and, and higher risk doesn't have to be a bad thing as long as there's higher reward that comes with it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's all about kind of how, how you take those situations of confrontation because we're going to have a ton of confrontations, you know, in the next five, 10, 15 years of this industry, as we refigure out the, the business model around the digital age. Um, so the more that the, the trade contractors, the MEPs can have this conversation and can start from the bottom up and it starts when risk falls in their plate and they actually know how to deal with it appropriately and, and uh, use it to their advantage. Guys, I tell you one thing coming from the dark side, right? You know, my background is a GC. I was always fascinated how the quote generalist told the specialist what to do of how could one side sit back and write these meticulous detailed schedules and do all this planning that had no idea really how to put it all in place. I can't tell you how many buyout project meetings I sat in and then getting into the job of watching 
unfortunately, how I will label it as a train wreck unfold because it wasn't planned properly with the wrong mindset. But I think we are starting to see it turn a little bit. Some companies are different than others, right? Do you have the right mental model that these are partners that help us put this together? Or, yeah, the combative nature, that's not a fun place to be. Any of the, anybody that remembers 8, 9, and 10? We don't want to go back to that mental model at all. I, I think a lot of it does – We've talked a lot about this with the CPC and, and Nathan, a lot of it does stem from the owner. You know, we've got a pretty good groundswell of people like us in the industry from, you know, the the middle ranks of companies, I would say, or the upper middle ranks in some companies. Um, but until it's until it's a, a contract requirement, until it's, uh, you know, pushed from the top down, we probably aren't going to see a lot of uh, changes. I do, you know, there are industry segments out there that that do understand the, you know, the importance of bringing the right subs on board early enough on in the process. We, we're probably going to see some of that. Um, hopefully we'll see some more contract types that allow for, for that deeper collaboration. So we're not combative and we're not just shoving risk around. One of the things from the, the trade panel that I really liked was uh, from Josh Bone. He, he said, you, you have to go about normalizing BIM and VDC to get everyone to accept the process. Uh, that sounds way easier said than done, but uh, any thoughts on how you go about normalizing? Carrots and sticks, carrots yeah. and sticks. You know, like I, th I think it's, the, we too often talk about the benefits of it, but we don't always talk about like kind of the, what happens when you don't do it. And, and we, a lot of times, anytime, you know, we're not an industry that likes to admit having any faults. Right. Um, but how often, you know, when there are faults, do we kind of go back and do those post mortems and really, you know, understand the role that BIM could have played. I think there's a bigger story behind that. That's going to convince owners to care why um, is really looking at the, you know, talking about it more from a risk advantage than an, an efficiency or a, you know, data transparency dashboard, whatever fancy Hollywood BIM you want to sell. I think if you sell the risk management side of it, it'll sell more, but yeah, we, you need buy-in from the top. That's going to allow the timing to change to bring the trades in earlier so that that GC doesn't have to create such a detailed schedule. Um, and, and we can actually do the not necessarily uh, design, then plan, then build that operate. We could actually plan then design, then build, then operate. And that's, you know, a little bit of that subtlety of, of how CPC sees the world of tomorrow versus how Audes sees the world of today with construction cloud of, do you see the world as a, we design and then we plan and bid and then we build and operate? Or do we plan as a complete team and then design together in BIM and then build and then operate? Because those are two very different mental models and it's, it's a big paradigm shift for this industry. You know, it makes you really wonder when you start talking about that owner perspective, if they, if it's an owner that's building one-offs like custom apartments or condos versus some kind of fast food or hospital, I think you see a big difference there because driving around Atlanta recently, I've been fascinated to watch things like a one-off car wash take months and I mean months to come together. And let's be honest, how fast can Chick-fil-A put a building on the ground and open it up? I mean, they figured something out, but that's a different model really is at the owner level, right? Yeah. Well, that I comes think... back to the normalizing you're talking about. Like we have to normalize our, our language. It's not just the process. We have to normalize what languages we're using. Um, and it gets back to what, what Amy was referring to with her shoe. Like if we can just, you know, get it down to where we're, we're ordering parts and pieces versus everything's so specialized and individualized. Yeah. I think the only thing I'll add is, you know, kind of to Rob's point, I think once it's done, the benefits are self-evident, right? 
Um, but that's only necessarily if it's full scale committal, right? I mean, you're only going to get in what you put in, right? That's universal. And then also the way you do anything is the way you do everything, right? And that's also universal. So, you know, if you get that full scale committal, I think, I think the benefits just become self-evident, but you know, that that's on the front end, right? And then on the back end as well, analyzing what went wrong, really committing to it. I, I think it's night and day, but um, yeah, I think it really just to come, comes down to really how you implement it and, um, you know, how often you do it. So Travis, the, that shoe analogy that Amy talked about, I, I thought was awesome. Uh, for those who missed it, do you mind uh, just kind of giving a quick recap of it? Yeah, I'll try to boil it down. I'm not going to do it justice, but the, the, I mean, the idea is instead of having to go to your local cobbler and get your foot custom measured for, for a shoe, you can now go online and order a shoe because the shoe manufacturers have all agreed on what a size nine is, um, you know, and, and in a nutshell that I think that's what she was getting across. And, and I know that we have some fears inside of the industry of being commoditized um, and productized, but I, I, I have news for us. You know, I think that we sh it's going to be a heck of a lot easier if we do it ourselves and then have it done to us. So if we take that mindset and we kind of say, you know, um, Yes, every building is unique and special, but there are components and parts and pieces that are uh, repeatable inside. Let's focus in on that and, and let's let a, an engineer order a chiller, you know, and a, and a standard install skid or something like that. Why don't, we, why don't we try to boil that stuff down? The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Evolve MEP. MEP, construction software for Revit. Evolve's MEP software for Revit makes project collaboration fast, simple, and more productive, which in turn significantly reduces project risk and cost. Born from the reality of a lack of available skilled labor in the industry, Evolve MEP has transformed the MEP detailer workflow. It's time for MEP to harness the Revit platform to offer seamless collaboration like no other software before it. Visit EvolveMEP.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, I think it's a great lead into uh, Jeff Sample's breakout of the, the growth first tech stack and really how do you go about gaining a growth mindset and, uh, you know, really embracing that culture and enhancing it, you know, so love to get your thoughts. I know a lot of you sat in on, on Jeff's talk there. I mean, I'll, I'll go real quick. I think, I think we were talking earlier about the, you know, a lot of these Amazon analogies. And I think there's so much of that, that mindset. Like if you're someone who makes a competing product to Amazon, but yet, of course, if you want to get out there, you're going to sell it on Amazon. And so like, how could you ever be in this world where you're using your competitor to sell your own product against your own competitor, but yet you still need them to distribute your product. And, and it's like this whole supply chain is so mucky now between all these different parts and pieces and as as a customer if you can't really learn to separate like what is the benefit to me as a prime member to select something that is under prime because of the benefits i get from that versus something that might be a little bit cheaper uh that's that's on that list but what are all these other hidden features or or uh drawbacks that i don't get um that i get with that so i think really equating true value and not just lowest cost 
is a huge part of, again, how we're going to get back to Travis's point of we need to convince the owners. You know, if we can't speak in their language, which again, all Amy has done in her career is worked with directly with owners and kind of how they think and how they act. And so a lot of our frustrations, I think she fully understands and, and empathizes and sympathizes with, but you know, how we fix it is by speaking and convincing those owners um, to change and, and being w willing to be flexible, like, like Jeff was talking about and kind of being ready for that growth, spur growth stack of different owners. Some are ready, some are not, but you can be prepared to uh, address that situation, uh, whichever type of owner that you happen to get. That's true. A lot of the part he talked, I liked the most was about the internal change at the company level and bringing up failure and that it's okay to fail and actually plan to fail. And we've all had our examples, right? Of things that we've done where I bought a drone way back when it was $99. The first flight, it went into a dumpster because I crashed it. $99 gone, but a lot of lessons learned. And everybody has that point. But is it okay in your culture, in your company to fail? That you're asking for that budget to buy something, to do some innovation. And is it okay that it might not work out, but it may lead to the next step where, He's also talking about the, the analysis uses of the infinite game versus the finite game, right? And the difference in soccer versus maybe construction and talking about that mindset of letting you really try and open up and do new things. That was therefore I think a powerful part of it. Yeah, I'll agree that the, this idea that it's a zero sum game that, that everybody has to win or everybody, or you lose. I mean, that we have to get rid of that mindset. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we hit on this a lot. Um, I think when I when I joined the industry four years ago, uh, we were really kind of right at the the precipice or in kind of the middle of the tech boom. So everything was tech, 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 tech. What's the fancy new tech? And that's where you kind of get the tech stack mindset, where you got to make sure everything weaves together and, and whatnot in place nicely, which is is definitely important. But if you're not focusing on the the people and the process and your internal, um, you know, being able to fail, like Rob says, being you know having that that mindset that uh, we need to be able to scale this beyond you know these individual projects. That's that's the growth stack that you really have to work on. Well, I think it's actually it's both, right? It's creating places where you can fail, those sandboxes, but also recognizing where you can't fail and investing in the the sort of protection of that. And I think there there's a lot to the motivation behind, um, you know, a lot of the, the greatest innovations is this sort of insurance policy. How are we digging for the right data or mining the right data? This this idea of how do I justify having a librarian in my company, a digital librarian? Um, this new new concept that I, I still don't fully understand. Maybe someone someone like Travis and others can explain to me. But uh, I think the import like understanding the importance of data actually starts by areas where you can't fail, and using that as an excuse. So I think, because every time I hear like, we got to fail, we got to fail, which of course I agree. Everybody Google X, that's, that's the innovation mindset. We also are in construction where sometimes for many reasons, you can't fail. You so, can't build nine out of 10 buildings that fail, right? Yeah, so just make another <laughs> full circle on the message here that you know, there are some cases where you can't fail. And so use that to your advantage to invest more in data, quality data, mining data, whatever. And then in the areas where it's sort of hardware or other software, other application exploration, have the ability to fail, allow that testing ground or whatever. So it's a, it's a yes and, but just wanted to clarify. I think another spin on what you're saying there, Nathan, is really defining what failure means and what it means to you, because it means something different to everybody else. And so as long as you're all on the same page, that, you know, what a fear that I have with the 
uh, no, no, where you can't fail is people are just gonna be like, oh, well, I can't fail here and here and here and here and here. And so then they're in the same position because they've defined everything that they can't fail at, which is not necessarily true. Uh, so defining it, but then as Jeff was talking about in that breakout session of have somebody that has that contrary opinion to you to kind of beat you up a little bit so that you really think it out and you have everything, uh, you know, all your ducks are in a row there and you can defend it to whoever. Uh, I think that makes it all better. Uh, and he had the line, fill out your culture, not fit your culture, mm-hmm. which when he first nice. said it, I was kind of like, hmm, uh, no, it, it didn't sit necessarily well with me. And then as, as I've been thinking about it all afternoon, I'm like, no, that makes a ton of sense. That, that's definitely what you want to, to fill out and have that big, robust culture. Uh, when I say it, it didn't make a ton of sense to me, that fit for culture, you want somebody that really latches onto your culture and that embraces your culture and that is going to help be a champion and a cheerleader for it. But the fill out your culture, everybody has different buckets in there that they have a blind spot to. So bring somebody that embraces your core values, but that can fill out and round out uh, your weaknesses. Inclusion diversity. Absolutely. Yeah. James, want to pull you into this because you talked about uh, a lot of this mindset in your breakout session. Yeah, it it was really ironic. Uh, And that's kind of why I was just listening in, just hearing what you guys had to say, because I'd already talked about it for, for, for way too long. But um, yeah, very much the same thing. You know, a couple of things I'd add is, um, you know, number one, as far as trying to get down to, you know, where we can't fail, that kind of mindset. And then, you know, and where can we, you know, have that that innovation and and kind of, um, you know, use those spots is I was really big, um, both when I was, you know, literally, you know, in those roles of uh, making a process map of not just your, you know, how your process and work just interdepartmentally, but your whole company, right? When, when the time, I know about even the existence of possibility of the project all the way until it's completely handed over who, whose hands does it pass through, you know, uh, where those processes are and document it graphically, right? Because when you're looking at it graphically, you can say, Oh, well, these seven or eight things come from this one other item that so you can put more importance on that. And, um, and it just leads to whole other things, right? As far as making sure people are the right fit for those responsibilities and, just having that graphical map, it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's really paramount because you're going to be really surprised just how, you know, often you refer back to it and how much you're able to glean from it. So for sure. I'd love to get everybody's thoughts on, on how do you really create a culture that embraces a growth mindset? Man, you're going to throw that one out right now? <laughs> been a long day <laughs> we may need to do that after the happy hour right, got a little right. Bit of liquid courage to really plow through that well i think that when you if you so if you're going to promote a growth mindset you have to allow people to have a certain level of autonomy which means that you have to be able to be supportive of them when they fail and and have them understand that you know yes repeated failures are a problem and you're probably going to be shown the door but um you know if you try something and and we can pick you back up as a company and move on that that's how you grow you're going to learn from that failure you know um i believe it was a disney or pixar movie or something like that we learn from failure we don't learn from success right so um that's you have to have that mindset you know to for grow too i mean if you're not failing and trying new things you're staying stagnant and that's not growth 
I was trying to I was trying to find a reference I'd, I'd said earlier, but I'm probably going to say the company wrong, but it is what it is. The point's still the same. So I think it was IBM during the 80s. Um, their CEO at the time, um, you know, they had they had a employee and he was fairly new on the job. And he did, I forgot, I can't even remember anymore. That's why I wanted to pull it up. But he essentially made a mistake that essentially cost the company a couple million dollars, right? So big deal. And he goes into the CEO's office and when he's sitting there, he's like trying to get his whole statement ready, right? He knows, he knows he's about to get shown the door. So he's trying to, you know, get all of his excuses in order. And before you get anything out, the CEO says, you know, well, first of all, I just wanted to, you know, bring you in here. And the guy says, well, let me tell you, you know, why this happened. And so he said, listen, I'm not firing you. I just spent a couple million dollars investing in you. <laughs> you know, why would I? And so, you know, obviously, you know, that that's a stretch, right? But the point still stands of just realizing, you know, is the, is the failure a result of, of not only a good intention, but, you know, a logical choice and so on? Um, or is it a consistent? And, and then you can kind of make those determinations. But um, I always just think that's a funny story um, to throw out there. That's an awesome story. Thinking yeah. and turning it on its head of investing in your future, right. not penalizing right. you for a mistake. That's a great yeah. mindset. That's a great mindset. Because I, I guarantee you more than likely, he didn't make the mistake again, right? <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're aware of that. <laughs> right. And you kind of learn from it, you know. Um, and then if not, then you really do need to be shown the door because, <laughs> you know, you just... He's probably not investing millions again. Right. Right. Same mistake. <laughs> you get one. Uh, right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Anyways. But no, I mean, I think the, the point about intentionality is is huge there. And I think that's that's a little bit of the the scary conversation in this industry is that, you know, when really we we put all the cards on the table and everybody's transparent about, you know, the, the what's in it for me, you know, if we don't have good, clear incentive structures and good transparency and good autonomy, you know, we can't start to move this stuff forward or, or at least, you know, we're going to have roadblocks, you know, in, in that path forward. And so I think what's really interesting in the discussion that we're having now is, you know, where are those small examples those small wins we can find at the sub to GC level or the GC to owner level or, uh, sub to engineer level or where, wherever we can create those sort of small wins um, and build upon those. But uh, I think as, as long as we're all in line on our intentions and, and have that, that level of comfort to be honest and transparent with our, our failures and, um, and learn from them, you know, with, with the right intention, then um, we're, we're all doing the right thing. Nice. Is that a good enough answer for you, Todd? Yeah. <laughs> hey, that works for <laughs> five o'clock after <laughs> the first day. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, any, uh, any other highlights from MEP Force that stand out on day one? I would say that, that I was happily surprised by the chatter and the chat boxes in the sessions. Um, you know, that we've, we've all talked as a group already about engagement online and, and the struggles and stuff there. So I was really happy to see people interacting there. Um, you know, you know, and it's, it was more like a real conference too, because there are little sidebar conversations that are kind of happening during they're, they're spawned from the session, but then you're going to have the, the, um, those sidebar conversations. So I think those are still really important for us to, to keep having. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the big things that we heard over and over again in planning this is, networking, 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 there's going to be no way you can get any of the uh, same interactions between people, which obviously it looks entirely different in a virtual context than it does in an in-person. There's, there's no way to make it the exact same, but I think as long as people do engage and 
type in questions, type in, uh, you know, different comments or use the community tab to, to really interact with people. You can kind of get some of that back. It's not the same. It won't be, but you can get some of that back. Same, but different. Yeah. It's, it's, the, becoming it's the same for 2020. <laughs> yeah. It's becoming less and less awkward. It's, it's, like, it's like wearing a mask in the grocery store. You know, right. it used to be really awkward and now just everybody does it. It's, it's like chatting That's in right. boxes mm-hmm. and virtual conferences. We're, we're all getting used to it. You got to so, love 2020. <laughs> it's the year that keeps on giving. In a weird way, think about this. You're pushing some boundaries. We're changing norms. I mean, the growth, what you told us about the stats, that's amazing to think how many more people you have connected these three days virtually versus not at all, right? You could have said, nope, can't do the event because there's no in-person, but you're pushing the boundaries and now there's over a thousand people, right? Or what was the number you said earlier? 1,300? 1300. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Connected Incredible. this week. That's amazing. So, Hey, these are the one of the things, where can we go next? No, for sure. It's exciting what the, the possibilities are there. Definitely. I think there's a, a real hunger for people to connect in all this. And, you know, we, we see it with your CPC roundtables, Nathan, of, of people willing to, to come on and engage in conversations. I think that's been a really cool, uh, factor coming out of COVID in 2020. Yes, there, there, there's a thing as a good Zoom meeting and a bad Zoom meeting. <laughs> Learn that. <Sure. laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Be allowed to fail. Yeah. Equal process in technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we will wrap it up there for our first uh, recap. It's, thank you guys for, for coming on. And uh, the audience gets very lucky because they get all of us back again for two more days <laughs> <All right. laughs> whether they want to or not but <laughs> they get us and tomorrow we're kicking off the the virtual happy hour which uh should be fun so or should be fun it's gonna make this a, a whole lot more entertaining i'm sure <laughs> who knows <laughs> what's gonna happen uh, oh, yeah. so big thanks to all those listening and, and watching us on uh facebook live and we will see you all tomorrow thanks so much everybody thank you Thanks, everyone. Look forward to it. We'll see you. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software, at asti.com for more information. You can also access MEP Force by going to mepforce.com. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. Until next time, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating.